Well, welcome to Southwinds, uh, both you who are here in our worship center, those of you who are across campus in the refinery, and those of you who are watching online, we want to say you're so glad that you have joined us today. We are studying uh, the letter of 1 Peter in a series we're calling Hope for Exiles, and today we're going to be in chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. And you'll want to get your Bibles open. You'll want to get yourself there uh, so we can follow through on God's Word as we look at it uh, word by word. Uh, last week, we started studying the middle section of 1 Peter, uh, chapter 2, verse 11 through chapter 4, verse 11, which, which shows us, as I told you, what it means uh, to live in the midst of an unbelieving world as exiles. And we began looking at what I call the exile lifestyle. And that's what we're going to be seeing today. Today is part two of this because this is a theme that goes across a number of sections. And I mentioned last week the central idea of this section, chapter 2, 11 through chapter 4, verse 11. And I put it like this, and you can write this down in your notes. God commands us as exiles to live beautiful lives. God commands us as exiles to live beautiful lives. And this idea comes from chapter 2, verse 12, where Peter writes, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So even though we're exiles, often rejected and seen as strange by the world and culture around us, we are to live lives of such beauty in Christ Lives of honorable conduct and good deeds that our family and our neighbors and our co-workers, they all look at us and they wonder and they give glory to God by giving their lives to Christ, which is what that phrase day of visitation means. So we've already seen in 1 Peter uh, from chapter 1 on that living beautiful lives as exiles inevitably involves suffering. And I told you last week that as exiles, we are called to endure unjust suffering and to do that with patience and joy. And we saw last week that in verses 11 through 17, Peter was writing uh, to exiles who were enduring unjust suffering in relationship to governing authorities. And sometimes we find ourselves in that place as well. But many of them also had to endure unjust suffering uh, in their lives as servants or in our terms today, in their work lives. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. That's what verses 18 through 25 are about. So, so what is God telling us today? I want you to listen as we read God's word, and then we'll talk about it. Beginning in verse 18, Peter writes, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Amen. For you were strained like sheep, 
but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And this is God's word. And all God's people say, amen. Now I want to start right up front by confronting something that maybe you're already thinking about. This is a very hard passage for 21st century Americans. And most of us read these verses. Some of you already did this. You're doing it right now. You immediately think, well, does the Bible support slavery? In fact, some Christians in the past have used passages like this to justify slavery. And so it it really isn't surprising that critics of Christianity point to Peter's words and they accuse the Bible of racism. So before we get into the verses, I want to take a moment uh, to address that question so that we can kind of set that to the side, clear it out of the way, and then we can get to the heart of what Peter is really teaching these elect exiles in Asia Minor. And I want to start by just saying unequivocally, Peter is not supporting slavery, particularly in the way that we would understand it from our nation's history. In fact, you just write it down, the Bible does not endorse slavery. Now what you need to know in this particular context that 1 Peter's writing is that slavery in the Roman Empire was was generally pretty different from the slavery practiced in America's past. In our history, slavery was connected to ideas of racial superiority. But this was not the case in the Roman Empire. In Peter's day, you would become a slave primarily for two reasons. Either one, because Rome had conquered your people in a war, or two, because you sold yourself into slavery to pay off debt. And because Roman slavery was not tied to ethnicity, many slaves would have looked just like their masters. In fact, the slaves in the Roman Empire weren't just uh, menial uh, servants, manual laborers. Uh, Some of them were educated far more than their masters. In fact, some slaves taught masters' children. They were teachers. Some slaves were medical doctors who cared for the master's family. Some slaves ran their master's businesses and their estates. Now, slaves during this time were were often emancipated by the age of of 30. So slavery wasn't always a a lifetime situation. And we might say that in our terms, slavery was a very common way for people in that day to earn a living. Some estimates put the number of slaves in the Roman Empire as high as 40% of the population. Now, despite saying what I just said, we can't deny that slavery back then was still rife with injustice. Slaves were often abused physically, sexually. Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, spoke for many when he said this. There can be no friendship nor justice given to inanimate things. Just as you cannot be friends or give justice to a horse or an ox, so friendship and justice cannot be extended toward a slave. As a slave and master have nothing in common, a slave is but a living tool. Now here's what we need to understand today. Neither Peter nor Scripture is condoning even this version of slavery. In fact, the Bible explicitly condemns slavery that involves taking someone captive by force. You can look at this verse, Exodus 21, 16, which says, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, Paul puts slave traders in the same category as those who kill their parents. And that just tells us quite clearly that The Bible explicitly forbids and condemns 
the entire system of slavery as it was practiced in our nation's past. The second thing I want you to see is that the gospel message itself subverts the idea of slavery. See, the gospel teaches that all people are made in God's image. The gospel teaches that we all share a common problem, which is sin. The gospel teaches that we all have only one hope, which is the blood of Jesus. The gospel tells us that when we come to faith in Christ, God adopts us into his family. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ in the same family. And if you just read through the New Testament, you see this again and again in God's kingdom. Poor and rich people have equal status. Check out the first couple chapters of James. The slave is the equal of the master. And by the way, that's the significance, part of the significance of Paul telling Christians to greet one another with, with a holy kiss in church. And, and I know, I know right now that sounds like a crazy violation of social distancing, okay? But what was going on there is very important. A kiss was a sign of equality. And so masters giving a kiss to slaves were indicating they saw them as their spiritual equals. And even in this passage, you remember last week, the last words we studied in verse 17, two words, honor everyone. Peter says we're to honor everyone as an equal son or daughter of God. And if you do what the Bible's saying, this just subverts, undoes the entire system. And, and in fact, this is the reason why everywhere throughout history this gospel has been preached and taken seriously. Societal revolution has ultimately been the result. One of my Ph.D. profs, D.A. Carson, has written and said that some of the best academic work on slavery is some extensive writings by an African-American scholar named Thomas Sowell. That's S-O-W-E-L-L. -L. And, and, and Sowell has been affiliated for many years with Stanford University at the Hoover Institution. He actually this summer turned 90 years old, a remarkable man. And among his writings, he points out that until the 19th century, slavery was virtually universal. It was practiced in China, in India, in Africa itself. The terrible European slave trade that trafficked 11 million Africans, that was a horrible thing. But at the same time this was going on, twice as many people were being bought and sold on the Arabian Peninsula. Carson says that we have an enormous amount of guilt literature coming out of the West, but none out of Arabia. And the efforts to stop slavery, where did they come from? They came from the Christianized West. He asked why. You see, slavery is universal. But what stopped it in the West? And the answer is the Great Awakening. The preaching of the gospel by men like John Wesley, which led to reforms by Christian Politi uh, political leaders like William Wilberforce. These two things were connected. So what we see there is that the gospel plants seeds that ultimately undo the broken systems of the world from within. You see, whenever Christians seriously reckon with the gospel, it brings systems like this down. The, the, the system of slavery it just brings it down on its head. Now, to be honest, as a a person living in 2020, I, I kind of wish Peter was more direct in his condemnation of slavery. I mean, I want him to say slavery is wrong. It should be abolished immediately. But evidently, God, who we believe inspired the scriptures, thought that a more effective way was to plant the seeds of transformation from within. 
And you have to wonder if Peter and Paul had merely issued political manifestos, maybe believers would have just focused exclusively on political action to the neglect of the more permanent and lasting change that would come through the preaching of the gospel. Now this is in no way is to say that we should not be involved in seeking justice in our culture. But I am saying, and I hope you will not miss this, the most important thing that the church, that we as Christians can do is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And just to bring it back to Peter's main point, think about this. Peter's purpose in writing this is not to evaluate the merits of the current economic system. It was to encourage those who were experiencing injustice. And see, that's the whole thrust of this passage. How do you respond to injustice because it's something we all deal with. We all suffer unjustly in this broken world. It doesn't matter how much you speak up, how much you fight for justice. At the end of the day, things may still not work out fairly. And part of the reason we know that is that that was what was true for Jesus Christ. See, Peter's point, Peter's point is that in moments like these, when you're suffering unjustly, you can still respond like Jesus. You can still entrust yourself to God who judges justly while reminding yourself of your heavenly citizenship. And you can be assured that through your unjust suffering, God is working salvation for other people. Just like he did when he used Jesus' unjust suffering to work salvation for you. Now, with all of this in mind... Here's the question. We started asking it last week. We're asking it this week. We're also going to ask it next week. How do we live beautiful lives when we suffer unjustly? Let me give you three statements that can kind of frame our, our journey through this text. Here's the first one. Go ahead and write this down on your notes. Receive God's grace in his call to unjust suffering. So look at what it says in verses 18 and 19. Again, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So we're not servants today. So how do Peter's words apply to us? And I think I'd articulate the general principle like this. Living a beautiful life means... That we should submit to those in authority over us. That should be the general stance of our lives. And, and for most of us, the most specific application of this text that we're going to encounter has to do with where we work. And so this means we have a disposition to follow instruction and to submit to the leadership of those who are over us at work. And you can probably think of a number of practical applications of this, I'm sure. I, I didn't say you were going to like them. But you can probably think of them, right? But here's what I want to do. Without getting into just merely workplace relationships, I want to drill down on the, the principle that Peter is setting out for us. Because this applies no matter where we are, no matter what we're doing. We are called by God to be subject to those over us, even when they are unfair. Even when they mistreat us. Even when we suffer unjustly. And we are called to do that without anger or bitterness, without a desire to hurt them back. And this is a radical concept, isn't it? See, the point that I'm making here, 
the point that you need to grab hold of is that we must realize right up front that this is not possible in our own power. We can't do this on our own. John Piper preached a sermon almost 30 years ago on this passage, and he made a great statement that I want to refer to throughout this message. This is what he said. It's on the screen. He said, The call to endure unjust suffering is not merely a rule to be kept, but a miracle to be experienced and a grace to be received. See, it's not just a duty on our to-do list. You know, we check it off. This is a miracle of God in your life. This is a grace. In fact, Peter calls it a gracious thing. And that probably has never been more true than today in our culture of outrage. See, we live in a culture... We live in a time where it seems like everyone is out there looking for every minor offense and takes pride in being the first one to find it and then goes online and tells the universe how offended we are. And we do that in hopes not just of getting that person to retract or apologize. We want to annihilate and destroy them. Rather than forgive, show grace and mercy. Is anybody else tired of that? Anyone else tired of living like this? Now, I'm not saying, again, that we don't protest injustice. We live in a free society. We have rights and privileges that, that, that should impel us to call out for justice. We should do this. But let's be honest with ourselves. Even as Christ followers, sometimes we get sucked into this vortex of victimization we start feeling justified in our unrighteous anger. We feel righteous in retribution. We feel vindicated with vengeance. And it's true that God created us in his image and, and God's a God of justice. And so we have something in us that cries out for justice against injustice. But sometimes we respond to unjust treatment in ways that don't honor God. Sometimes we justify to ourselves saying, you hurt me. I'm going to hurt you back. We think it's okay to become moral vigilantes. I mean, tell me I'm wrong. When was the last time you heard even a Christian say, I've been mistreated and, and wounded. I mean, I was in the right. They were in the wrong. I, they deserve to be punished, but I will not retaliate. I will not slander. I will not try to settle the score. I will return good for evil. I will bless and not curse. I will forgive and pray and seek peace. Remember, this is not a duty to be performed. This is a miracle to be experienced and a grace to be received. You struggle with this? I mean, I know I do. I, I need Peter's words because I know in my own heart those natural impulses what peter calls back in verse 11 the, the passions of the flesh that these things rise up and fight against this right here and, and here's the thing do you realize that if our flesh wins the battle here of what god is calling us to to endure suffering if our flesh wins then what's going to happen and i will tell you you give in to your flesh and you will ruin your marriage and you will ruin your parenting with your kids and you will ruin your witness in your neighborhood. And you may ruin your career. I would ruin my ministry. We might just ruin our faith if we don't do what God says. I can't tell you how important this principle is. 
Remember last chapter, Peter says we have been born again to a living hope. That living hope, that new life, born again, gives us the power to live differently, to live beautiful lives that cause the people around us to be amazed. Are you seeking to do that? You know, verse 21, I want you to notice Uh, We'll see this again in a minute, but but Peter says we are called by God to endure unjust suffering. How many of you find yourself thinking, I want to know the call of God on my life? Well, I'll tell you the call of God on your life, and I'll tell you before I tell you, you're not going to like it. God calls you to endure unjust suffering. See, somebody says amen, but only because I ask you to, right? We don't like that call. We don't want that call. The Bible says it's our call. God has called us. We are to follow in this way. And, and to make it worse, these verses 18 and 19, it's not a call that happens just when we're responding to good people. It's when the unjust, when we're treated unjustly. See, in other words, you go to work just to use that environment. This is not about the slacker in the office who goofs off and won't respond to correction and ultimately gets fired, and then he cries, unfair, and he says he's going to sue. I mean, he got what he deserved, right? Peter is talking about when you do the right thing and you still suffer and no one notices the good you're doing and, and you're punished for doing the right thing. Have you ever been there? Are you willing to... Do what Peter says to receive God's grace as you suffer unjustly. Peter says you can do that. Notice this, when you're mindful of God. Which means that you are living consciously in God's presence. You are keeping God in mind. God is before your thoughts always. A part of being mindful of God leads to a second way to live a beautiful life as exiles. Let me show you this one. Go ahead and write this down too. When you suffer unjustly, trust God to reward you. Peter points out in verse 20 what we naturally understand. He says, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? I mean, we get that. You do something wrong, you suffer. You just have to kind of muscle through, right? But what we don't naturally understand is what he says next. But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. See, our natural response to unjust suffering is to demand justice. We say, don't we, that's not fair, this should not be happening to me. We ask, why, God, right? I want to tell you, when we think like that, we're actually adopting a totally unbiblical worldview, a worldview that says karma is real. Now, you know karma is this idea, what goes around comes around, you you get what you deserve, you don't get what you don't deserve. But I want to say something, if karma is the operating system of the universe, then our universe is totally broken. I mean, like, like a virus is in the system, right? Just look around. That doesn't happen. I don't care who says that. 
It doesn't work that way. That's not how things work in life. Bad things happen to good people all the time. And good things happen to bad people all the time. Lots and lots of very, very bad people get rich and stay rich and live very long lives. So that can't possibly be what's happening. And so something in us cries out for justice. We, we, we say, I, I can't believe this is happening. I've been wronged. I've been mistreated. And, and when we allow our hearts to go there, our hearts can take us to a place where we start saying things like, I have to vindicate myself. I have to stand up to myself. I am justified to retaliate. But what does Peter say? He says, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And I've pointed out, this is the second time Peter has said, this is a gracious thing. See, here's what I want you to see here. He asked the question at the beginning of this verse, what credit is it? He says, there's no credit when you sin and suffer and endure. And by implication, he is telling us there is credit. There is reward from God when we do good and we suffer and we endure. The call to endure unjust suffering is not merely a rule to be kept, but a miracle to be experienced and a grace to be received. You see, when we suffer, we will be able to endure if we trust and if we know that God one day will reward us. One day, he will make all things right. And if we know that, we don't have to respond. We don't have to hurt people back. We do not have to rant on social media to prove our point and vindicate our cause. Now, you might think this is just masters and servants. That's what's being talked about in our passage today. But if you read ahead in 1 Peter, you're going to see Peter keeps going and he keeps bringing this matter of suffering up again and again and again. One example, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, where Peter writes, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were what? Say it out loud. You were called. For to this you were called. He's not talking to slaves and masters here. He's talking to all of us. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. You want to follow God? You want to respond to his call? Unjust suffering is going to be part of that call. Now as we're going to see in the weeks ahead, Peter has a lot more to say about unjust suffering. But let me take you to the final truth for this morning. Here it is, write it down. Follow Christ's example as you face unjust suffering. Look at verse 21. Why should we behave like this? Well, again, as I've mentioned, for to this you have been called. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. So he's talking about Christ's suffering. What happened in Christ's suffering? I want to point out two things here. They're rare. You can see them. They're very clear in the text. The first is this. Christ suffered for you. For you. In your place. On your behalf. He bore your sin. He took the penalty 
for your sin, the sin that, that you deserved. And, and, and remember, what does karma say? Karma says you get what you deserved. The gospel says you get what you don't deserve. Jesus. Jesus got what you deserved. He took all our guilt and shame and condemnation. He bears it away and we get his righteousness in return. And think about that. Jesus is the only one who never did any wrong. And he suffered unjustly. I mean, if there was ever a paradigm for how you respond to un unjust treatment, isn't it Jesus Christ? See, what we need to understand in this, uh, from this verse is that when we suffer unjustly, that's not condemnation for you. Jesus already took your condemnation. It might be discipline, and it certainly is God using those things in your life to make you more like Jesus, to make you more holy. So if you're wondering why it is that when we do right, we seem to suffer for it, the answer is it's because it's your calling. The answer is because Christ has suffered for you and, and God wants to make you more like Jesus. He is conforming you to the image of his son. When Christ suffered, he was suffering for you in your place. And the second thing, Christ gives us an example to follow. We see this in verses 22 and 23. Here's his example. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And friends, hear this. This is nothing short of you dying and Christ living in you. This is the pattern for us. Not retaliation or, bitter or bitterness or slander or threats. Not anger. See, this is not a duty to be performed. It's a miracle to be experienced. It is a grace to be received. And I just want to ask, how many marriages could be salvaged if this was in play? How many relationships with parents or relationships with children could be restored? How many work relationships could could end in reconciliation. How many church relationships? You know people, maybe you're one of them, go from church to church to church to church to church. How many neighbors and friends might come to faith in Jesus because they saw us living this out? See, we've all sinned against others, done things we shouldn't have done, only Jesus could say, I've only done right and I've only received pain. We are called to endure unjust suffering. And when we do, as, it's, as it says in verse 19, this is a gracious thing. And then as it says again in verse 20, this is a gracious thing. By the way, in the Greek text, the word thing is not there. It literally just says this is grace. This is grace. It's a miracle of grace. And where does that miracle come from? Well, grace is divine enablement. Grace is the power of God given to you that enables you to do what he's called you to do, that enables you to live the way that Christ lived for you. And again, don't forget, it happens. This grace comes as we are mindful of God 
we follow Jesus' example as we are mindful of God, conscious of God in the midst of our suffering. We know that God's not just an idea. He's a person. God is reality. God is really present. He's, he's not a casual observer way up high in heaven looking down on your suffering. He's in it with you. Why do you know that? Because he sent his son Jesus. He's there and he'll never leave you or forsake you. And that's where Peter's pointing our attention in the last two verses, verses 24 and 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Amen? For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You see, what are we to be mindful about more than anything? And the short answer is right here. It's the gospel. That's the gospel. It's the grace of God in the gospel. I want you to notice what he says about Jesus. What did Jesus do in his suffering? It says he continued entrusting himself to God. God, the just judge. He just kept saying, God, I trust you. I don't have to carry this. You will carry it. God, I trust you with the abuse. I entrust you with the suffering, with the injustice, with the hateful words, with the mockery. I trust you, God, because you are the judge who ultimately settles every matter. You are good and you are just. I mean, that's how Jesus, as he hung on the cross, could say, Father, forgive them. The writer of Hebrews says that anyone who comes to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who diligently seek him. I mean, I just have to ask, do you believe that? Do you really believe that? That God rewards? Do you trust that God sees your every hurt? He knows your every circumstance, that he will one day make everything right. Do you believe that? Because that is being mindful of God. And if God is that real to you, when you are suffering unjustly, when you are being mistreated, when you are wounded for doing good, what's going to happen? Well, it may be hard. It may be so incredibly hard and painful, but you'll be able to hand it over to God and you'll say to God, God, I entrust you to take care of this because I don't need to carry around this burden of bitterness or anger or malice or envy or slander. I don't need to be carrying around threats talking behind people's backs. I don't have to revile God. I can honor. I can bless and not curse. And I'm just telling you, this is a beautiful life. This is a beautiful life. When you live like that, there are some people who will see you and they will watch you and they will wonder what you as an elect exile are doing and what your life is all about. I want to show you what this kind of beautiful life looks like IRL. For people who aren't like as cool as I am, that means in real life. I said that for the teenagers that are here. I want to give you two real life illustrations. The first is over five years ago. It was actually June 17, 2015. On that date, a man named Dylan Roof
walked into one evening in the middle of the week the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. And he told them he wanted to study the Bible with them. They had a Bible study group all sitting in a circle. And, and he sat down with them. And then in the midst of that Bible study, you remember the story, he stood up and he opened fire. Nine people died. Felicia Sanders lays on top of her granddaughter in hopes of saving her. She watches as her 26-year-old son, Tawanza, stands up to Dylan and says to him, why are you doing this? And Dylan responds to him, and it's, it's painful for me to repeat his words. He, he looks at this young black man and he says, because y'all are raping our women and taking over the world, I have to do this. And he fires five shots into his chest. Felicia Sanders said, I watched my son come into this world, and I watched him leave. That is unjust suffering. I mean, these are Christ followers. They're doing good. They're studying God's word, and they suffer for it. And if you know the story, it wasn't too long after this in court. The people of the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church Felicia was one of them, said to Dylan Rood, we forgive you. In fact, one man, Anthony Thompson, who lost his wife, Myra, said this to Dylan in open court. He said, I forgive you, but we would like you to take this opportunity to repent, repent, confess, give your life to the one who matters most, to Jesus Christ, so that he can change you and change your ways. And, and Dylan, no matter what has happened to you, you will be okay. Do that, Dylan. And you'll be better off than what you are right now. Jennifer Pinckney lost her husband, who was the pastor of the church. She forgave Dylan. And a reporter confronted her afterward and said, why? How? I mean, where do you go to find that kind of forgiveness? And her answer was, to God, to having the Lord in my life. See, the people of Emmanuel, African Methodist Episcopal Church, experienced a miracle and receive grace. Because the call to endure unjust suffering is not just a rule to be kept. It's a miracle to be experienced. It's a grace to be received. Second story is told by Dave Harvey. Dave Harvey, uh, a number of years ago, wrote an excellent little book on marriage called When Sinners Say I Do. And in it, he tells the real life story of a, a couple by the name of Emma and Gordon. And Gordon was a pastor. And Emma and Gordon married when they were young. But on their honeymoon, Gordon, the pastor, told Emma, the only reason I married you was to advance my career as a pastor because I can go farther if I'm married than if I'm not. He didn't love her. He never cared for her. What would you do? Emma decided she'd been shown such great mercy by God that she would show mercy to Gordon. And she endured a loveless marriage with a man who seemed bent on crushing her spirit for 40 years. And her kids watched it all. And she said, what kept me there was the gospel of Jesus Christ. I wanted my kids to see the gospel demonstrated and their marriage ended in divorce and Gordon walked away from his family left them devastated left them financially destitute Emma's on her own these 
four kids. They're all trying to pick up the pieces of their life. And yet, even after the divorce, Emma kept writing to Gordon. She sent him birthday cards. She sent him other cards now and then, urging him to come back to God. And in the great mercy and kindness of God, years later, Gordon finally confessed his sin, repented, and after all those years of serving as a pastor, and he finally believed in God and received salvation. At a conversation with his kids, his kids were able to say to him all the ways that their dad had wounded them. He confessed to them. He repented before them. God began to restore their relationship. One day he wrote Emma and he asked for her forgiveness. He said, I'm sorry. He tried to recount some of the ways that he had wronged her. Now, you're Emma. What do you do? Well, we don't have to wonder what she did because what she did was preserved in a letter she wrote. She wrote back to Gordon and said this. It is with mixed emotions that I read your letter. Sad as I was reminded of many difficult years but also glad for the work the Spirit of God is doing in your life. Glad to hear you share your failure so frankly and to ask for my forgiveness. Glad to hear you share those with your children. Gordon, I forgive you. I forgive you for not loving me as Christ loved the church. I forgive you for your disregard of our marriage vows. Though I am saddened by many marriage memories, I have released them to the Lord and have guarded my heart from the ravages of bitterness. I rejoice in the mercy of God that in spite of our failed marriage, our children all serve the Lord faithfully. God uses confession and forgiveness to bring healing, and I'm trusting, I'm trusting God that will be true for both of us. That is a miracle only God could do. That is a gracious thing. Because the call to endure unjust suffering is not merely a rule to be kept, but a miracle to be experienced and a grace to be received. And that is a beautiful life. Southwinds, let's together live beautiful lives.